Welcome to the Impact Masters Commission Bible Study Podcast. Join us as we study the Bible verse by verse. I'm your host, Pastor Josh Hawkins. We're going to have some deep, thoughtful, and hopefully helpful discussions to try and discover together what it means to be the followers of Jesus. I think we finished um, talk on hypocrisy. I think we got through verse 17. Uh, that would be chapter 7, I think. Is that right? No, chapter 6. Or maybe 18. Yeah, verse 18. All right, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this is very connected to what Jesus was just finished talking about because he was, remember he was talking about, um, uh, hypocrisy and how we shouldn't be giving for everybody to see. We shouldn't be praying for everyone to see. We should be doing those things in secret just between us and the Father. And in that way, you know, we're honoring God and the God who sees in secret will reward us uh, in, that, in that way. And then Jesus says this, Do not store up treasure for yourself on earth, but in heaven. Do you see how those two things are connected? Because what he said prior was, when everybody has seen you and, oh, good, good you, good you, religious person, we're so, you're so righteous and holy, you have already received your reward. That's what he says. You've received your reward at that time. But those of us that, that when we practice those things in secret, God's going to give us a reward from himself, which is you know, he doesn't say this, but obviously a reward from God is going to be greater than a reward from men. But this is why the reward from God is going to be greater from, than that for men. Because it's a heavenly reward that can't pass away. Earthly rewards always disappear. They wear out. They get stolen. They, they, they end. And whatever, when we're even talking about goodwill with other human beings, like, well, now they like me, so that's good. They like me now. Even that, as you must know by now, is temporary because somebody that likes you today may not like you tomorrow. <laughs> we, I hope that you all know that that's true, uh, that, that human favor comes and goes, but God's favor comes and stays. It remains. Uh, in fact, uh, in the passage in Ezekiel where, or Ezekiel, Exodus, where where God moves through and says to Moses, I will, I will show you all my goodness, right? And then he proclaims the Lord, the Lord. And he, he says, showing favor to a thousand generations of those who love me. This is nonstop favor. This is favor that continues forward, not just for the rest of your life, but for 
your life, your children's lives, your grandchildren's lives, etc., 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 as long as they stay in relationship with God, the things that you have done will be bearing fruit in their lives generations later. I am a third-generation Christian, and I'm a second-generation pastor. My dad's dad, they got saved when my dad was around three or four years old, gave their lives to Jesus, and began to live a, a life in Christ, uh, devoted to Christ, and still are to this day. My dad then became a minister, rededicated his life when he was 16 years old, became, you know, became a, a, a pastor. And so, and, and so I'm receiving the favor of two generations before me who have been serving the Lord. Now, the, the, way, that, the way that Exodus talks about it, it means... If, if a generation in those thousand generations were to rebel and leave the Lord, that that's, that would be the end. Okay. That, that the favor that has, that has flown, that has come down through the generations. Obviously, if you're going to step away from that waterfall of favor, that's your own, you know, that's your thing. But, but to those that stay and love the Lord from generation to generation, it is this multiplication of favor that, that comes layer after layer after layer of God pouring out mercy. And that happens both in the natural realm and in the, and in the spiritual realm. Okay, we think of favor, we kind of automatically think spiritual realm. But if you look, I can point to, this is one of the things that I, that I say to people, like even if I, uh, even if I didn't believe <laughs> that, um, all this Jesus stuff was true. Okay. I can still look at the stories of the families who have dedicated their lives to the Lord over generations. And I can see the blessing generation after generation after generation. And it's not always monetary. Sometimes it is. It's not always money or possessions but I watch families that are dedicated themselves to Jesus and I see how much they love each other and I see how their marriages work and I see how their relationships with their kids work and I see how their friendships work and I see et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. The families that have given their lives to the Lord and stayed dedicated to the Lord continually, continually, more and more, God is, there is blessing that is going on there. And even if I was unsaved, if I, if, if I had seen what I have seen, I would still want to give, dedicate my life and my family to the Lord because I've seen the benefits of it. If nothing else, it's wise. I think it's much more than wise. But if nothing else, it's wise because I, I can tell you, when I look at those families and those people who have, set, who have stayed dedicated to God's way, to God's wisdom, I'm not saying nothing bad has happened. Of course, bad things have happened. Difficult things have happened. But they had a rock to stand on in the difficult times so that they didn't fall apart. And not all of their marriages worked all the way through to the end. Sometimes there were still divorces, etc. But there's still a greater measure of blessing that is evident in those families than in the families that have not dedicated themselves to the Lord. A greater level of freedom. 
in those families. And, and so what Jesus is talking about is absolutely true. But there's this other point that Jesus puts in there, which is that last verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you want to be more passionate about Christ? Start investing your life in Christ. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you giving your time and energy and money to? What are you giving your time and energy and money to? I promise you, the more invested you are in a thing, the more passionate you will be about that thing. And I have seen it over and over and over again where people that love Jesus begin to misinvest. I don't know if that's a word or not, but we're going to use it. They begin to put their investments in the wrong places. They begin to spend their time, energy, and money in, in places that aren't God's places. And over time, their heart begins to be transplanted out of the heavenly things and into these other things, whatever they might be. And eventually, they're pulled out of faith, out of the church. Not of connection with Jesus. The primary way that First Assembly of God has discipled people over the last 40 years has been teaching them to get involved in the church, in ministries that are happening here, etc. You want to know why that's true? Especially Pastor Barry Joris, that is his absolute top first thing he would tell you. You want to grow in Christ, you have to be doing the work of the ministry. Which is why he created many masters. Which has had really great fruit, by the way. And you watch, as people spend their time, energy, and money doing God's things, investing in God's kingdom, their heart for God and for His kingdom grows because we care about the things that we spend our time, energy, and money on. We do. Why? Because we spend our time, energy, and money on it. And where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. And if we want to increase our passion for Jesus, we have to double down, make a deeper investment in Him than we have before. And sometimes, yes, that's financial. Sometimes that's time-wise. I need to give Him more time. As we were sitting here a few minutes ago, the Lord said to me, I am inviting you... I was having an internal conversation with the Lord. I said, Lord, there's a lot of static in this room. You just feel it. I don't know if you guys know what that means, but when I've operated prophetically in different situations, sometimes it's like you could hear a pin drop in the spirit. Like all the Lord has to do is whisper and it's loud. But then there's other times where it's really difficult to hear very well. It's, you have to muddle through and kind of find your way, and it's not easy. I always refer to that as static. And I was like, and this morning, even though I 
Millard was giving me specific things that I heard to say. I also, there was a lot of static. And I said, Lord, there's a lot of static. And he said, well, you brought some of it with you. It's like, oh, I did, huh? <laughs> and he said, I'm inviting you in this next season to squash the static and learn to hear my voice better. So that was a prophetic word for me. I was about to give that to you guys, and the Lord goes, no, 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 that's for you. <laughs> okay. And it's a good season to do it because we've entered the season of Lent. Anybody familiar with Lent? Isn't Lent like Advent, but it leads up to Jesus' resurrection? Very, very yeah. true. Yes. It is a season of preparation. It is 40 days prior to Easter, right? And the tradition of the church has been to fast during Lent. Not usually a total fast. It's usually they fast one specific thing or they, or they fast one specific day out of the week during those 40 days, etc. But the tradition in, of the church for around 1,200 years or so has been to fast during Lent to prepare your heart. The whole idea of a fast is about removing static really is. It's about removing static. It's about quieting the other voices, the other noise, so we can focus in on God. It's about giving extra time and removing other influences so that we can, can focus on God. And I'll tell you, I don't know how many of you have ever done any, an actual food fast for more than a meal it takes a few days it really does to clear out the sugar static that's what it is to where your body switches over to running off of your reserves but once that happens it's usually about day three or four when your body stops freaking out and telling you that you're starving to death and things start to quiet down a little bit and there's this clarity that comes. And for me, it's usually the morning of day four. I wake up feeling great. Like, wow, I've got all this energy. And I feel like I, the Lord isn't in the next room. He's sitting right next to me and I think speaking to me. But it takes, it really does take that long. Like it's day one, you're hungry. Day two, your whole body is rebelling. You have a headache. Your, your, uh, your body's going, caffeine, where's the caffeine, right? You know, um, usually a lot of times I'll have some stomach issues. You know, I'm not... My stomach is upset. Day two is terrible. Day three is day two, but not as bad. For me, this is my process. And then day four, I wake up on the morning of day four. I'm not usually hungry. And I'm feeling awesome. And once I've pushed through to day four, I'm usually good. Yeah. Total fast. Water only. Water only. We've only done one. We've only done one day of those um, this year. 
in our fasting last month. One day fasts have their uses, I'm sure, but for me, for me, it's not a real fast unless it's at least four days. Four days with like only water? Yes. We did one last year. Yeah. Um, two days. Day two is the worst. Day two is the worst. Yep, it stinks. The longest fast I've ever done was eight days, and it, and and the only yeah, and the only reason that I that I quit, the only reason that I quit, I didn't want to quit. I felt fantastic, but we had some like family stuff or whatever and i didn't want to be a bummer like you know and like not eat and you know i and and the reasons i had chosen to fast the lord had already spoken but i was kind of like i was telling my wife the day before the day before i broke my fast was i was i said i don't know if i want to i really like this and she was like you are crazy i said no this i feel good I really do. Now, if you're going to go longer than like two weeks, you should start drinking broth and that kind of thing because you really need some protein. Um, but yeah, a, an, a water only fast. Uh, it's an experience, I'll tell you, but it's good. It's good. I would recommend it. So I have, been, I have tried to do seven days every year just once a year i'll do seven full days of water only um uh, when i was fasting prior to the election this year i decided to do meal replacement drinks like well there's there are sp specific drinks now that are supposed to have all of the nutrition you need for a meal not just protein, but like yeah. everything. Yeah. No, really, they do. There's several different ones. There's one called Huel, like H-U-E-L. There's another one called, what is it called? It's from a movie. Soylent. There was, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's SpongeBob. That's something else. Um, no, Soylent. S-O-Y-L-E-N-T, which is from a movie called Soylent Green, where the earth can't produce enough food anymore, and so they, have, they give out these pellets or whatever, and at the end of the movie they find out that the pellets are made from dead people. But oh. Spoiler alert, you were never going to watch it anyway. It's ancient. But um, the end of the movie is, is Charlton Heston, who's the main character, and the cops are taking him away and he's yelling at the top of his lungs, people, Soylent Green is people. And that's the end of the movie. Anyway, <clears throat> so Soylent, um, uh, yeah. But anyway, so I was trying some of, the, some of those and they're, they're actually pretty great. But I didn't feel like I was fasting at all. I felt completely normal. Yeah, just replaced all my food. I mean, I was a little hungry, but I felt totally normal. I didn't feel like I went through that purifying fire. So, is that okay? What? Like, because I know normally people say, 
you need to fast to where it actually feels like you're giving up something. And so, like, you're still giving up, like, all the food, but if you were really hungry and that kind of stuff, like... I don't think I'll do it again unless I'm doing a really long fast, and then I'll, like, maybe drink one a day or something like that after we get... But, like, there is a chemical reset that happens in your body where your body goes off of feeding on, on the food that you're putting into it and switches totally over to eating your fat resources. And eventually your muscles too. It starts burning your muscles too. Um, which is why you need to start drinking like uh, protein and, and things if you go very long. Yeah, I, um, think, I think I need to check uh, like, uh, on the food I eat because two nights ago, oh my gosh, I woke up. Uh, so, so it's like the I normally sleep on the couch. It's like the first time I fell asleep in my bed. It's like 9.30. I passed out. And I woke up like two hours later because my acid reflex was really, really bad. And I ended up going to the bathroom and puking because it was that bad. Yeah. And then I had a sore throat because the acid burned my throat when it came back up. And so it was hard to go back to sleep. Yeah. And last night I ate some pretty greasy foods too. And I felt it like before I went to bed. And so I started chugging water because I don't have any like acid reducer. Milk is better. <laughs> but I hate milk. <laughs> Just saying. I started chugging some water and I was like, oh God. Please, milk works better. And I slept fine. But Good. Well, then it doesn't work better, but milk works better for most people. But, um, yeah, if I'm starting to feel heartburn or whatever, I, yeah, milk will usually take care of it pretty quick. But anyway, yes, but welcome to getting older. That's just going to get worse. <laughs> I, my, I know my whole family deals with it, and, like, my brother started to deal with it, like, a few years ago. Yeah. And, like, I felt it every once in a while, but, like, this was not... What you got to do is the American thing and take a Pepsid first before you eat, yeah, and then you're going to be good. Yeah, we're not going to be healthy. We're going to take medicine so we can be even less healthy. That's, that's... So, yeah, trust me. <laughs> Jesus well, talks about acid reflux in, in Matthew chapter 6. Why do you say that's the American thing to do? <laughs> because that is the American thing to do. We invented that. Like, he's, he's basically saying, like, the pill's going to stop you from having the consequences of eating unhealthy, but we are going to eat unhealthy. Most other places in the world would just look at you and say, well, then just stop eating that much. Yeah. Not here. We're like, take a Pepsi. Woo! Tums. Um, Doesn't matter, um, which is why America is the fattest nation on the planet. Are you serious? By far. I, I would be surprised at that. I thought maybe like England would be because of all the beer they drink, or Russia, or Russia. The United States of America is the most obese nation on the planet. Everywhere else in the world, we're known as those fat people. It's just real. It's true. It's true. They assume fat people must be Americans, so they hear the talk. That's just a stereotype. I mean, a stereotype. Yeah, but there's some truth to it. Yeah. Statistically, we're much fatter than most other nations. But anyway, it's because <laughs> let's keep moving. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is Jesus continuing to talk about where we put our treasure. But he changes the metaphor, as Jesus often does. And he starts to talk about light. And he says, wherever you focus your attention, if you're focusing your attention on the light, you will become more full of light. But if you focus your attention on darkness, you will become more full of darkness. That's right. How great is the darkness? If all you're doing, your eyes are the only way that light gets into your body. And if your eyes are only focused on darkness, is there any light getting into your body? No. Is that because your eyelids are thin? Because like if my eyelids are closed and someone turned off and on the lights, I can see it. Right. Yes. I mean, I don't know. Oh. You could probably see that. If your eyes were other places, you could probably see through it as well. I mean, have you ever looked at, like, you can see some light through your hand and stuff yeah. like that? What do you mean, like, if someone wants to gouge your eyes out, are you saying we could see where no. our eyes are? No. Oh, I thought maybe you were talking about some sort of, like, Toy Story 3, Mr. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head thing. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is, and, and this is a metaphor, y'all. This isn't an actual medical reality. Okay, it's a metaphor, yes. Yeah, sure. Um, do you think that when, in like Job 40 and 41, when God's describing the Leviathan, if it's um, like... Do I think it's dinosaurs? Well, if you think that it's like what he's saying, like it breathes fire, and uh, if that was like an actual creature, or if it was just a metaphor. I think the entire book of Job is a metaphor. I don't think Job is a true story. I think it's a metaphor. I think it's a story. A mythological story. I don't think that it's meant to be read as history. Um, really? I have a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. So do you not think that well, everything that happened to Job is actually real? No. I think it's a... Like I think it's. I think it's a, a, mor a morality tale. I think it's a story. I don't think that it was... That it actually happened to a human being. I don't. Okay. Um, I, have, I have scholarly reasons to think that. Most biblical scholars think that. Um, that this is... I'm not okay. Now there's a difference between is it fact or is it true? It is very true, but that doesn't mean that it's fact. Do you understand the difference? Nope. <laughs> okay. The things that this story was written to tell us are biblical truth about God and about us and about the way we walk through the world. That this story is being told to us for a reason to tell us that, you know, that bad stuff is going to happen, we need to continue to trust God, that not all bad stuff, that bad stuff doesn't, doesn't come necessarily as a punishment from God all the time. In fact, I would say never, that's my own personal opinion, that, that the world is a destructive place, and therefore destructive things happen even to the best of men. But that God is with us, and that we need to keep walking, keep moving forward, and trusting Him, and He will make wrong things right, if not in this life, then the next. How many books have you read that are about things that never happen? I don't know. I, I, apparently a lot. <laughs> many. Of course you have. Have you ever read any fiction? Uh, no, I don't read. <laughs> the Bible is the only book that I read. Is they're like, hey, you need to read this oh, book. Jesus, help us all. Well, that's a mistake. 
You need to read. So do you I mean, feel I'm sure I'll get to it eventually. You need to read. Um, what? Sorry. So do you feel that way about Revelation, about how Revelation should be taken symbolically? Revelation is only symbols. That's all it is. How else could you take it? Do you yeah. think that there's really a beast that comes out of the sea with seven hands and ten horns? I mean, do you think that's actually going to happen? <laughs> no, it's a, they're all symbols. It's symbolic, absolutely. But Revelation's not a good example. What you should be asking me about is Genesis. Oh. <laughs> do I think Genesis is an actual true story? And I would have to say some of it. Did God create the world? Absolutely. But here's even more. I'm, can, let's push this just a minute further. And then I'll get back to your... Okay, Leviathan is the... He's the dragon of chaos, okay? He is a mythological figure that they were all very familiar with. And there was story after story in the mythology of the cultures that surrounded the Jewish people of their gods defeating the chaos serpent, okay? It wasn't an actual creature. They wouldn't have thought it was an actual creature. Uh, so no, I don't think anything breathed fire. I don't think it was. Um, no, that is one interpretation. There are definitely people that are going to interpret that another way and say that these were, that this was an actual creature being described and maybe it was an alligator, maybe it was a hippo, maybe it was um, something prehistoric that we don't, you know, and did it breathe fire, fire, like a dragon breathing fire? Probably not, but you know, there's different there are bugs and things that can take two different chemicals and squirt them together and it causes like like a little burst of flame. That exists. Maybe there was like a lizard that could do that. We just don't know about it. Yeah, sure. I personally, I think the whole thing is metaphorical. I think the whole thing is a, is a myth. I don't think it's historical. I don't think it's meant to be read historically. That's my opinion. And the reason I, okay, let me give you a few of the reasons why. Number one, it's not set in any specific time. Okay, most of the other stories of the Old Testament, they tell you during the reign of kings such and such or before so and so. Number two, Job is never mentioned in any of the lists of the genealogies of the Old Testament or new. And for this man who was apparently a great man of God, he would have been listed in somebody's genealogy and he's not. He's not there. Okay? Um, just the nature of the story of Satan walking into the throne room of God and being like, hey, God, whatever. It seems very metaphorical. It seems very mytho mythological. Okay, but there's many, many, many stories. Of course, they are meant for us to learn something. They're meant for us to take things from them. But that doesn't mean that they were actual historical events that are being depicted in the book. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay, here's my next question. Do you really think when we see conversations between David and his men or between even Adam and Eve, do you think they spoke those exact words? Probably not. They probably didn't. Well, Adam and Eve, I would say, unless God, unless God put like whatever like language they spoke into them, I don't know if they would know how to speak, being the first man and woman. Well, I mean, God spoke. God, they spoke. Yeah. Obviously, the first man and woman spoke. Okay. Um, the 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 problem is, these stories were written down hundreds, if not thousands, of years after they took place. 
We don't have the exact words. And it seems a little silly to me that we would think that those were. Now, it's different when we get to the New Testament and we're writing things down not even, a full, not even 30 years after they took place. And we're talking about a man who went around and said the same things over and over and over again in the multiple different places that he preached. That's radically different because these are things that have been repeated by the followers of Jesus over and over and over again. Do you remember when Jesus said this? And you had the guys that had been with him when he went to all these different places. They probably had his sermons memorized. Why? Because they'd heard it a thousand times. I remember once I was good friends with a kid whose dad was an evangelist. And whenever he would come to town, to our church... Uh, uh, I would hang out with his son. You know, we only saw each other maybe every couple years or whatever, but we were friends. And I remember him, like, he could look at me and tell me, and, and he would, like, say exactly what his dad was saying at certain points in the sermon, because evangelists always work up a message and deliver it basically the same way every time, every place that they go. That's very normal for evangelists. I'm sorry if I'm making you feel weird about evangelists now, but that's true. Okay, they preach the same message over and over again. Most, some of it's going to be almost verbatim, and some of it's not. And his son would look at me and be like, because he knew what his dad was going to say at that particular moment in time. Right? And I was always kind of like, how'd you do that? Right? <laughs> now I get it. It's the same thing with Jesus. Everywhere he went, he said the same things over and over and over again. So, yeah, 30 years later, they're going to remember it. In fact, it was really important for them to remember it. And that's why the disciples were the ones that were constantly teaching people, because they were the ones that had been with Jesus, hearing him teach over and over and over again every day for three years. And now they can go out and they can say the things that Jesus said. Right? So we have the exact words of Jesus. When we're talking about people who wrote things down hundreds of years after they took place, they were making choices about the things that they were having their characters say. And they may have, you know, a story that's been handed down generation after generation that they are now writing down. But it is silly for us to think that because the Bible is inspired, that we have the exact words that Adam and Eve spoke to each other. Doesn't make any sense. We're also talking about different languages. They weren't, they weren't speaking Hebrew. You have a question? No, I was Okay. Does that make sense, guys? And is this messing with your bibliology right now? <laughs> so do I think that that no, I don't think anything in the book of Job is literal. I think the whole book of Job is is a morality tale. I think it's wonderful. I love it and I read it over and over again. But but I don't think it's a historical book. I think it's a poetic book. It's a, it's a, it's an uh, epic poem like Gilgamesh or whatever. But this one's inspired by the Holy Spirit, which gives it authority, which means I should be reading it, which means that I, it's going to breathe life into me as I read it, and the Holy Spirit will interpret it for me. But it doesn't necessarily mean these are historical facts because... They didn't even know what a historical fact was. That is not a category they had. Does it? They didn't think that way. Well, did, was that, is that a historical fact? Or not? These are pre-literate cultures. That's not how they thought about things. 
These stories are important. These stories are true. These stories need to be told. Is it exactly the way it happened? Good enough. And are the writings we have inspired by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely! Do we take them as authoritative? Absolutely! This is the Bible. Is it the Word of God? Absolutely, kind of, because the real Word of God is Jesus. But we're going to keep moving forward. Jesus is the Word of God, and the Bible is Scripture. I'm not demoting the Bible. I am exalting Jesus. All right. Was that clear? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. You don't have to agree with me, but <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah. So that's where I come from, especially when it comes to Job. I think most Bible scholars would agree with me on that, that it's not historical. It's, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I was just reading that today, and I was like, well, is this, like, actually, like, a beast, or is he, like, alluding to, like, the power, like, the destruction that Satan can have on someone's mm. life, and I don't know, it was just, I had never thought about yeah, it. Yeah, he is the personification of chaos, of the uncontrollable. Which is why it's so astounding that God can control him. Does that make sense? Yeah, he is the Leviathan, is a creature that shows up in all the mythologies as the spirit of chaos, destruction, death. The ocean, the sea, the waters of the sea are also symbolic of chaos and destruction as well in the Old Testament. Okay, any other questions about that? Do you think I'm a big, I'm a big heretic? Anybody think that I'm a crazy heretic and I don't know what I'm talking about? That I'm preaching things that aren't true? Heresy. Oh, okay. Yeah. By the way, you can only be a heretic if you're saying things about God that aren't true. It's a very, heresy is a specific charge. I might be preaching untruths, but that doesn't mean I'm a heretic. But I don't think I'm preaching untruth. If I did, I wouldn't say it to you. But I think as we're coming up as kids and, and we're told this Bible is true and this Bible is the word of God, that sometimes that means we get, we, that means we, we believe things that even the most conservative biblical scholar wouldn't necessarily want us to believe, okay? Yes, it's true, but truth and fact are separate from one another, okay? That those are two separate things. I'm not saying facts aren't true. Facts are true, but fact is a different thing than truth because you can get truth from a movie that is entirely fictional. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like you can learn something from Lion King, which is entirely fictional. Exactly. Like sure. I, I've, I've, I don't know what I, you're learning I, from Lion King. I've typed, I've typed up a sermon that I preached on when I was in, was it fine arts or fun arts? One of the two. Um, and um, I preached over, um, I preached over the scene when like the monkey um, shows shows him his reflection in the pool. Yeah. Yeah. And I say how um, I pre I use that as a symbol to 
say how we um, see we um, look at ourselves and sometimes we don't like ourselves or like we see ourselves and we're like oh God can't oh like I don't I don't see God in me but then yeah you know you know what I mean yep I do that's exactly what I'm talking about just because it's not factual doesn't mean it's not true yeah there are truths embedded it's the only reason we tell stories is to communicate truth. It's the only reason we tell stories. Anyway, which is why I'm a big fan of fiction. I love fiction. And you need to be reading some fiction. All things Disney, man. You need to be reading some fiction. It's necessary. Okay, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. I would retranslate that back into mammon, not wealth. Uh, I am reading a book right now, which is it's quite, it's quite liberal. It's fascinating, but it's called The Politics of Jesus and Mammon. And it all comes out of this text that Jesus was describing in his ministry two separate ways of engaging with the world. One was the way of the world as it exists, which is mammon, mammon's way, and then God's way. And God's way is characterized by generosity, by, uh, by us not protecting our, our, our and hoarding wealth and, and saying, I, I am only relying on myself and not on God also. Or, over against the world's way, which is get all you can, keep it all, don't let anyone else have anything kind of a thing. And Jesus was saying, you can't do both. You can't straddle two economic systems. It's either the kingdom's economic system or the world's economic system. It's either the kingdom's way of seeing the, seeing the world and operating according with money and resource or the, or the world's. And I don't have nearly enough time with that. To deal with that, that is a huge, huge subject. And honestly, I don't feel like I'm enough of an expert to teach it well. Not yet. Let me finish reading this book and pray about it and whatever. But I would agree. The world. Uh, and that Jesus, just like, just like when Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And we all kind of go, uh, what now? Right? Jesus also says crazy things like sell everything, give all to the poor and follow me and then you will have treasure in heaven. Excuse me? <laughs> That's, I don't think Dave Ramsey would be okay with that particular uh, uh, way of, of looking and thinking about wealth. But Jesus said it. He put it out there. So you're going to have to deal with it. You either have to mean, make it not mean what Jesus meant meant it to mean I'm, I'm my interpretation is is leaking out but you we you, you have to interpret it one way or another you can say that jesus only really meant that for this guy because wealth was an idol in his life or you can back up a little bit and say jesus was trying to take this man out of the system of mammon which was the god of wealth and give him over to the, the creator God, who's the God of generosity. And 
removing him from one place and putting him in another is a pretty big yeah anyway and i think yeah but so are you saying that um when you, i know i understand the you can't serve god and um like you said man or mammon mammon or, um, like you can't um you can't be like um this is mine you can't have it or like I, i've worked hard for what i have um so are you saying we should as as christians to follow like his to live by what his kingdom would be are you saying we should be willing to like if somebody needs something like say like say like um there's someone that needs a couch and like um and in my house I have a couch um say hey I have a, hey I have a couch if you need it you can have it like are you saying something like that like say and be willing to I don't think I can I don't think I can fully address this whole conversation in the five minutes that we have okay. so I don't really want to go down the rabbit hole with you okay, okay. Uh, because because this is a complicated and nuanced issue and I, yeah. I can't i can't just say give everything away that's what jesus is saying because uh, that's not exactly what jesus that's is saying that's not good boundaries when it comes to like spiritual boundaries so but seeing seeing yourself i'll say this seeing yourself as the steward of the resource that god has put into your life yeah is very very different than seeing yourself as the owner of the things that god has put into your life does like, that make sense? Yeah, it's like the steward in Lord of the Rings when, like, Gandalf said, you, <laughs> and when Gandalf said, you can't deny the sure. return of the king. See? Fiction that has truth. Yeah. Right there. He's only the steward. He's not the king. We're only stewards. We have true authority, but when the king comes, we have to do what he says. Yeah. Because we're still under the king. And that and all the things that God has put into your life, all the resources, your your money, absolutely, your possessions, absolutely, but also your time, your energy, your abilities, your uh, the things that you, uh, I can't think of the word, the, the, the things that you have learned, yeah. your skills, okay? All of those are resources God's put into your life. And you are the steward of those resources, but they don't ultimately belong to you. They belong to the Father. And if the Father calls you to expend that resource in any way, that is his business and not mine. And so I, I am going to do what God tells me to do with these resources that he's put in my hands. Yeah. Because they're not mine. Yeah. And if we really believed that, our lives would radically change. Yeah. But most of us don't, including probably me. Okay. Uh... Uh, I'm going to push through to the end of chapter 6. Just We only have three minutes, but I'm going to do it anyway. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by worry, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not, then, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat or what we will drink? 
or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eager, eagerly seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So should you be worrying? No. Why? That's that's one of the points Jesus made. It's not the only one. Because worrying adds adds emotional stress on you. Jesus actually didn't make that point, but it's a good one. <laughs> that's uh, it's a true one. Yeah. But he didn't say it in his discourse. Yes. Because uh, he says something about how like if the birds are like hungry, he provides for them. Yeah. And like we're worth way more than what birds are, so like why worry? Yes. So there's two reasons not to worry. One, worry accomplishes nothing. And that is, that is the thing that we don't really believe. None of us really believe that because we still worry. Okay? We do. You want to know why you worry? Because your emotion, your brain is considering the possibility of this thing as a threat. Until your body responds with a threat response, which is, we call that worry. Cortisol begins to leak into our body. We begin to live in a place of anxiety and fear. We begin to respond to things in, out of anxiety and fear. Right? That's what happens. That's how it works. Our body has considered this existential thing to be a threat, even though there's no way it could possibly kill us and eat us, which is why we have this system in our bodies, right? Which is why Jesus is saying, don't worry. We're... But worry actually doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't accomplish a thing. It doesn't make our lives better. It makes our life worse. But number two, the reason you don't worry, and Jesus spends way more time on this, is that you have a Heavenly Father that cares about you. And He is going to provide for you. He's going to watch over you and He's going to protect you. And when your hope, when your trust is put in Him, there's no need to worry. Okay, so we have two, there's two reasons why we should not worry. Number one, it accomplishes nothing. Number two, we have a Heavenly Father that provides for us. But there's another reason too. Or rather, another point that Jesus tries to make. Anybody know what it is? One, worry accomplishes nothing. Two, we are being provided for by our Heavenly Father. What's number three? Because tomorrow's got enough worries of its Well... That's, that fits in one and two. The other point Jesus is making is this. The things you worry about aren't important. They're not worth worrying about. Exactly. I mean, what will we wear? What will we eat? Yeah. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, hmm? um, so when you said, like, your second point, which was, like, God, God will, like, provide for us. Yes. So you shouldn't have to worry. Yeah. Like, I get that, and I completely understand that, but I feel like, I feel like if we just have that mindset of, like, oh, like, I don't have to worry about my bill, because God will provide me. Like, <laughs> I feel like people will have that type of mindset. Sure. If you, like, if you said that, you're like, oh, yeah, like, you don't well, have to worry, because God will Hear what Jesus is saying, not what Jesus is not saying. Okay? Because what Jesus is not saying is stay in bed, no need to go to work, no need to live your life, 
because God's going to provide for you. That's not what Jesus is saying. And that wouldn't make sense according to the whole rest of the Bible or the whole rest of Jesus' teaching. He doesn't tell people not to work. He never tells people that they should be lazy and go on welfare. He never, well, welfare didn't exist back then anyway, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that when we're doing the things, all the things that we've done, that we can do, we have to leave the rest to God and he'll take care of it. Yeah, it'd be totally easy yeah. to take Jesus out of context here and say that. But everything that Jesus said up to now doesn't, would not align with that, with that interpretation. Mm-hmm. Remember, this is a whole sermon, and we've been parsing it up into little pieces, but this is a whole sermon. So, yeah, no, I agree with you. That is not what Jesus is saying at all. And I'm sure there are people that are like, oh, good, well, fine, I don't have to do anything. Woohoo! Vacation! <laughs> and they're going to find, wait a minute, why isn't God providing for me? Well, uh, th- th- you have totally taken Jesus' words out of context. I just feel like with, like, with that mindset, and someone's like, oh, well, like, you said, like, God would provide. Like, why is he not providing? And I feel like some people can be like, oh, well, like, God's just not real because yeah. of, like, what the people said and stuff. Yeah. Like, I, I don't believe that, but I was just... Right. Like, well, those same people would also be upset that God is not providing... Oh, he's providing food, but he's not providing the food that I wanted. Oh, he's... And they would be worrying about the things that Jesus commands you not to worry about. Mm-hmm. Are, are you willing to go hungry? Because Jesus is not to worry about what you're going to eat. So, yeah, that might mean you're not going to eat at different times. <laughs> Eat enough to stay alive, but... See, we like to be picky to tell God what He has to provide for us. Yeah. So, there's a whole lot of ways to take all this out of context. But Jesus has a point. Jesus' point is, worry does not accomplish anything. You have a Heavenly Father who's going to provide for you. And let's prioritize our lives so that we're spending our time and energy on things that are, have worth and not things that don't. All right, that's it for today. Thanks, guys.